You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Hey, we love Burger King Grilled Dogs. They're made with 100% beef, and they're 100%... They're so good, they make us want to sing like... I can't believe it. Burger King made a grilled dog. Made with 100% beef. Flame grilled anytime you want. This July 4th weekend, put down the tongs, step away from the grill, and get to Burger King to try a grilled dog for just a dollar. Ask for the dollar grilled dog deal and get a classic grilled dog for a dollar. Only at Burger King. At participating restaurants on July 2nd and 3rd, limit five per transaction while supplies last. Welcome to Real GM Radio. I'm Daniel LaRue, your host, and thank you so much for joining us this week. As it ended up turning out, this ended up being a Sloan Conference interview podcast. For those of you who are unfamiliar, the Sloan Conference is run through MIT every year around this time, late February, early March. And while it covers all sports, in the last couple of years, it has really taken on a heavily NBA tone, and there are a lot of immensely talented people who are there. And I was incredibly happy to get two of them to come on and talk about the experience. And those two are Ian Levy, who writes for Hickory High and Hardwood Paroxysm, and Arturo Galetti, who writes for Box Score Geeks. And they're really talented people, and I loved having them on. But first on is Ian Levy. You can read him, as I said, on Hardwood Paroxysm. And he is the founder of Hickory High, which is hickory-high.com. Excellent, excellent site. And of course, Hardwood Paroxysm is great. He and I talk for about 24 minutes. We go on various things about the conference and what you can learn from it, but also the interesting dynamic with proprietary information and how Sloan has taken on a little bit of a different tone, for better or for worse, in, in the last recent years because of the audition form, let's just say, of the of the format. And it's still a great thing, but it was fun to talk about it with him. We also get into the NBA in a broader sense at the end, which was definitely an enjoyable part of the conversation as well. As I said, it runs about 24 minutes. So, thanks so much for coming on. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me again. How many years have you been going to Sloan now? Uh, this was my third year. And how was this experience, let's say, was it di- different than the previous years? 
the you know the conference experience itself is actually pretty this pretty much the same year to year. I know on a personal level, it's been better for me every year because I'm more confident. You know, my first year I was so sort of wide eyed and in shock and awe. You know that I had a hard time sort of managing and figuring out where I was and what I was doing and you know what was the best use of my time while I was there. So as I've sort of gotten the lay of the land, I feel like I'm sort of getting more out of my time there. But you know the conference itself over the past three years, I had a lot of conversations about it while I was there. It feels like it's kind of the same thing every year, especially on the research side. You sort of get these bits and pieces, these interesting things. But you know, particularly this year, I left and all the research presentations I went to, there was nothing that felt like it was really actionable, nothing it felt like, you know, was ready to sort of affect the game that we're watching on a nightly basis. And one of the other guys from Hickory High actually used the term intellectual meat market, which I thought was a funny way of describing it. So there's, it's, I've sort of become more and more aware of that side of it, that a lot of the research stuff is sort of people auditioning for consulting jobs with teams and sort of saying, you know, here's just a small sliver of what I can do. And then the really good stuff is sort of being done, you know, behind, uh, behind high walls. Yeah, that's a really interesting point, and the dynamics, it feels like, because I, I didn't go this year, but I followed and read a lot, um, as much as I could, and I still have a little bit more to go through, but it did feel like they weren't really presenting these fully-fledged, really kind of nuanced ideas. It was more about the headlines, which was kind of a strange dynamic for me of the papers. The panels were obviously different. Yeah, yeah, the papers. There was a really interesting paper that guy used a, a machine learning technique, basically, to teach a computer program how to translate the sports view data and automatically recognize on-ball screens. And so, you know, as you're sitting there, you're kind of like, well, teams have video guys who sit there and watch this. What the heck do we need a computer? You know, why do we need to train a computer to do this? And, you know, the long game is that teams can more quickly work through the sport view data and find what they're looking for and sort of tag more things automatically, which will let them pull more out of it more quickly. But sort of the end result of the research paper is that this guy presented a really cool technique, which ultimately teams will invest in theoretically. Somebody will buy it and he'll take it to that team and we'll never see or hear from it again. If it does come back out, it'll be 10 or 15 years down the road where it's, where it's just kind of an old hat thing that everybody's doing. Yeah, and it's, I don't know, the dynamics of it just seem really interesting, but there's still a lot of value in the conference just in terms of the amount of people that are in the same room or rooms as it is at a convention center. That still has plenty of intellectual value, let's say. Yeah, definitely. I mean, actually, the two most interesting panels I went to, or the two most interesting experiences of the whole conference was were both uh, around Malcolm Gladwell, who I kind of have uh, misgivings about in different areas. But his interview with Adam Silver was a one-on-one -on -one panel, and that was fantastic. Gladwell also did a one-on-one -on -one debate with David Epstein, who wrote The Sports Gene, and they were sort of talking about the 10,000-hour sports gene thing, about kind of the nature versus nurture thing for athletics. And uh, intellectually, I, I got more out of those two things than I did out of any of the research papers. It's funny you said that about Gladwell because I'm very similar in, that, in yeah. that same way. But at the same time, I do like that he's generally good at conveying his opinions, even if I don't necessarily agree with them. Yeah. And to be honest, I, 
to his credit, he was relentless with Adam Silver. You know, I haven't really looked in the past couple of days to see if, if all that video is out. But, I mean, he asked all the questions that you would want somebody to ask Adam Silver. Things about public financing for stadiums, things about the age limit, things about PEDs. And he really, you know, he didn't back off if, if Silver gave an evasive answer. You know, he followed up. He went after it. He really made him explain things. And when, when Silver was giving an answer that was clearly, you know, BS, Gladwell called him on it. So it was, it was really interesting to see. And actually, the, the funniest dynamic of the whole thing was at the very beginning – I can't remember exactly what it was, but there was two or three questions in a, in a sequence where Silver was making clear, both with his answers and his body language, that the answer he was giving was sort of the company line, but he didn't necessarily agree with it. You know, there was a few different things where he would kind of repeat his answer with kind of like a wink, wink, nudge, nudge, like, this is what I'm supposed to say, but, you know, I maybe don't necessarily agree with it wholeheartedly. That's a huge departure from Stern. Because with him, the, if you want to use the phrase message discipline, mm -hmm. I'm not even sure if it was necessarily message discipline because there was just one message. Yeah. And that is a welcome development, though. One of the really interesting takeaways as somebody who wasn't at Sloan that came from Sloan was the juxtaposition of Silver, I think it was two, three weeks ago, in his all-star press conference saying that he had seen no evidence of tanking. And then Brian Colangelo, it's Sloan, basically saying that his teams did it. And while obviously there's some convolution in terms of what actually is tanking, and that's an argument that plenty of people have had and will continue to have, that dynamic I personally found absolutely fascinating. Yeah, and you know, being being in the room, I was in the room for that panel watching Colangelo on the big screen. I definitely don't think that he... I don't think he really processed that statement before it came out of his mouth. And he, you know, he went a few sentences in before I think it really registered what he had just said. But I think he also made clear that he was not talking about intentionally losing games, that he was talking about the, he was talking about the organist. And I mean, I think he explicitly said this, that what they were doing was sacrificing wins in the short term and focusing on player development by moving out veterans and carving out time for young players young players who needed minutes, maybe some fringe guys who they thought they might turn into into big values down the road. And so they were, you know, it was not like guys were faking injuries or, you know, missing shots on purpose. They made organizational decisions to develop assets as opposed to, you know, push through and spend and try and squeeze every single win, you know, they could to wind up in a seven or an eight seed and then, you know, be in a position where they have to undo all of those, all of those short-term mistakes that they've made. And that is an excellent point and goes into one of the key components of the, let's call it the tanking discussion, is that to me, that is the form of, if you want to, I'm using air quotes, tanking that is a problem is that I don't consider that, I agree with Colangelo that I don't consider that tanking. There are two types that I do consider. One of those is accelerating surgeries that can be delayed, which is what I personally feel the Warriors did in mm -hmm. 2012 when they wanted to get Harrison Barnes. And then the other one, which is substantially more rare, is the actually trying to lose games. And I'm convinced that it has happened because I remember that Mark Madsen game <laughs> and thinking to myself, okay, this doesn't happen a lot, but it does happen. And it's, you know, that last game of the season or you're sitting guys and that goes into, I, I feel like that discussion is, has been litigated, but goes into what was one of the major components of the conversation with Gladwell, which is the wheel. 
Yeah. And, and if I sorry, if I could go back to the tanking thing, just one more thing. Sure, that, absolutely. That I, I love and I can't remember who said this or where I read it or, or, or where this comes from. So I can't appropriately credit. But my favorite thing about this tanking discussion is somebody pointed out Sam Presti to me and they said, how come Sam Presti doesn't get nailed as a tanker? Because him trading James Harden undoubtedly made them worse in the short term. And he knew it was making them worse in the short term, no matter what the line was that they were trying to sell to the public. He knew trading. James Harden made their team measurably worse that season, but it was a move for the long term. It gave them more flexibility. It gave them young assets. It gave them, uh, you know, draft picks. And so he sacrificed a little bit in the short term to pay off in the long term. And so, you know, I think that's a, a perfect example. But Presti gets off because they were close to the top of the league, whereas, you know, somebody making the exact same sort of sorts of decisions at the bottom of the league, you know, all of a sudden it's an unforgivable crime. And that one is in many ways more interesting intellectually to me because the primary reason that they made the trade was actually financial in the in the broader financial sense, not in that really narrow sense, which goes into another part of the discussion about the role of ownership and management in the NBA itself. Yeah, it's constantly a balance. And the idea that there's sort of no chronology in the NBA, I feel like it always bleeds into these discussions about tanking. It's that these teams need to treat every season as the only season when we know that there's a long game. We know that the best teams are built and assembled over multiple seasons. And so this idea that every team needs to make every decision to squeeze every possible win out of each season it's every team is making decisions and balancing this trade-off between what helps us now and what helps us next year and what helps us in five years. And it seems unfair that certain decisions, you know, get highlighted because of how people have weighed that balance. I mean, if you if you're honestly making a mistake and you're misjudging what's going to help you now, that's one thing. But if you're making a decision saying I'm I'm willing to maybe not be the best I could this year because I will be in a better situation five years from now, I don't think that shooting yourself in the foot necessarily. Absolutely. And that dovetails really nicely into one of the more interesting player development things that I think could end up being the story of the 2013 draft, which is that long-term projects like Giannis and Rudy Gerbert, instead of staying in Europe for a couple of years and getting the benefit of that and also the huge financial benefit of not having them start their rookie contracts at such a young age, those teams made the decision to bring them over early and have them play in the NBA and get used to the culture. And that's another completely justifiable decision that makes their team likely worse in the short term. Yeah, you know, it's it's the same kind of thing, but it's all these shades of nuance. And so certain decisions, you know, get get hammered for for being tanking and certain decisions are, you know, shrewd player development moves or shrewd financial moves. And it's just, uh, you know, the discussion often seems inequitable to me. Yeah, that's an excellent way to put it. And I think that's a fair transition into the wheel itself. And what was surprising wasn't so much that it got discussed, but it seemed how open and accepting silver and in general the nba people who were on the panels were to it yeah i I think silver walking into this thing sort of i don't know that sort of like making the league distinctive or or sort of putting his stamp on things is necessarily really on his on his ring 
radar, but there's clearly a willingness, or he's clearly trying to frame himself as somebody who is willing to talk about these things, to possibly make drastic changes, to really look at all the different parts of their game and make of the game and make improvements where they need to be made. Until some of these radical things are are put in place, the wheel or the four point line, or you know, doing away with the conference playoff structure, whatever it is, until those things actually go into effect, you know, it seems like some of it's just sort of talk for window dressing. Yeah, and it does change the conversation from what it was with Stern. You know, we joked about it earlier, but that, you know, it seemed like everything was edict more than it is. But you're right that until it becomes action, it's just lip service at this point. Though it is, I would say, welcome lip service, even though I actively dislike the wheel. Yeah, I, I'm not a huge fan of the wheel either. But yeah, I, I mean, I do appreciate that some of the some of these things are on the table. It's welcome discussion. And, you know, I don't there's a lot of wild ideas out there. So I don't necessarily like the idea of everything getting in the door. But the tack of saying that basketball is not perfect, and we're willing to look at everything we can to see if we can make it better. That framework or coming from that perspective, I think is a good thing, whether I, you know, agree or disagree with all the individual things they're talking about. That's a really good way of looking at it. When I was at Sloan last year, I gave a lot of thought to kind of where I thought that conference and the discussion of the people who were at it will be in, let's say, five years. Have you thought about that at all, of what do you think we'll be talking about then? You know, I don't know. It seems like every year there's kind of a hot thing, and this year I don't, you know, I guess I don't know what it is. We'll sort of see what unfolds and what hangs on over the next couple of weeks. I don't know if it's the um, the sleep analytics thing. There wasn't quite as much talk sort of about health and injury analytics as I was expecting. I think that was something that, you know, people have been talking about leading up to the conference. You know, it's weird. It's the conference, at least on the basketball side, has sort of become the sport view conference. You know, uh, almost all the research papers on the basketball side were done with sport view data. And so I would like to think that, you know, five years down the road, we'd be looking at research that's done with other data. And, you know, everybody's so focused on, you know, what we can pull out of the sport view data. And that's fantastic. But I think, you know, we can get so lost in that visual spatial stuff that there are other things, you know, that can that can get ignored you know so I'd like to I'd like to see that there's still some broad horizons there yeah and I've been thinking a lot about I had a mean Ellison from ESPN on a couple weeks ago and he was talking about the competitive advantages of ownership and it, one of them was something you mentioned early in that answer which is psychological testing mm-hmm. and obviously it's going to be very interesting in terms of things like privacy and all of that sort of thing in terms of specific athletes but I feel like the human body and the human mind are the most intellectually interesting of the avenues. The question is just going to be whether the conversation can match the interest. Mm-hmm. You know, and last year going into sports view, that was one of the things, um, you know, we were starting to see the sport view stuff and see things about the speed that people can can move. And there was a paper, um, there was a research paper at the conference last year about like G-force and which players, you know, their movements were generating the most G-force. So that sort of felt like, oh, this is this first step towards using this visual spatial data that's available through sport view and, and using it to look at, you know, this athletic side and maybe less uh, sort of on the strategy side, but I, you know, there was there was nothing about that in the research this year. 
could that maybe be, again, on the line of competitive advantage that the teams that have that are trying to find people and keep that in-house? I think it's probable. I mean, the ultimate and unfortunate bummer of this conference is that the stuff that teams are really using doesn't show up at the conference. You know, you know, there's a whole set of work and data and findings and knowledge that's being used and is being implemented, but it's not at this conference because it's all proprietary and teams don't want to share and they don't want to share it with each other and, um, you know, they they don't want to lose that competitive advantage. So a lot of what's going on at this conference is people sort of auditioning to have access to that world, you know, either to get in and contribute or, you know, to bring something of their own. Although it's interesting, actually, one of the research papers this year um, was done by a team called Second Spectrum. And I they're all professors, but they also are actually a consulting firm. And I know they work with the Clippers and I think a handful of other teams. You know, so there's, there's stuff at this conference that's being done by the people who sort of are are on the inside. But again, what we see at the conference is it's not what's actually on the cutting edge because what's on the cutting edge, you know, nobody wants to show us. And that also makes the dynamic between the teams and the individuals that are there interesting because, you know, the teams are working with stuff that's more advanced, but they, I think in some ways they want to see what people can do with what's in front of them. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I mean, it feels like that a lot. Again, not to just sort of dump on the conference because I really enjoy it and I love going and I'm looking forward to going next year too. But there is this part where a lot of the research papers feel sort of like job interviews. It's people saying, here's the skill set that I've got. Here's what I can break down. Here's what I can pull out of this stuff that you're working with. Let me come into your office and do it for you. And, you know, there's really good stuff, but you just know that there's a difference between the analytics that we see at the conference and the analytics that are actually being used. That somewhere there's there's a divide, there's a chasm. I mean, even the the paper that Kurt Goldsbury worked on with his, with his research assistants, that paper was is nominal and a huge sort of intellectual breakthrough, the EPV paper, but it's also completely unactionable. I mean, he said in the in the write-up at Grantland that the only way they were able to do the calculations for that system was this like massive Harvard supercomputer was the only thing that can handle those calculations. So, you know, that stuff's not going to be on the sidelines, you know, in coaches' hands on an iPad anytime soon, helping them make in-game decisions. And it's, you know, has some use as a, as a player evaluation tool. Um, and they sort of talk about just sort of cutting the surface with that. But again, it, it works because they have access to the massive resources at Harvard. I don't think any teams have that sort of computing power, those sort of resources devoted to this, even the Rockets or, you know, Spurs or some of those those teams on the edge. Yeah, that's a really interesting view of it. And also, yeah, the relationship between the technological ceilings and also the amount of money that teams as much as they want to, can commit to this, especially as it's in this nebulous state, there isn't a direct cost-benefit analysis that any team can do because it's all being figured out right now. Yeah, there's no invest X and you get Y back. And it's it's funny, too. There's, you know, you go to a conference like this and you just sort of assume that every team's in on it, you know, and I, I think all 30 teams had some representatives there this year. But, you know, I, there are some teams where that have an analytics department. You can't see I'm doing air quotes, but the analytics department is one guy in an office, you know, working by himself and it can be a battle to get what he's working on accepted. And so, you know, I think there are still some places in the league where investing in analytics is 
is about saying that you're investing in analytics and not necessarily about pulling out stuff that's really useful. Like one of the other things that we've heard sort of heard trickling out about the sport view stuff is that there's sort of a basic framework. There's a basic web portal that all the teams have access to that has really basic stuff. You know, it's sort of a, a maybe a slightly more advanced version of what's publicly available on the NBA site, but only a handful of teams beyond that actually access the raw data and do anything with it. Wow. Yeah, because that's where, from what I've heard, and I presume from what you've heard as well, that it's this avalanche of data and that what you can do with it is really kind of powerful, but you have to have the right people and you have to see it in the right way. And it's very interesting if teams aren't really tapping into that, if that's where most of the value slash competitive advantage would be. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a huge amount of infrastructure to pull anything out of it. And you need, you know, you need people like the researchers who are at this conference and, you know, they cost a lot of money and they need, you know, a setup for it. And I think in some places it, you know, takes years to sort of get something set up where you're really pulling things out of that. And then the other thing, too, is if you have a front office who doesn't have questions that they want answered, I mean, that's a whole nother ball game. I mean, if you you can spend all the money on the infrastructure, you can get the right people in there. But if you don't have questions to ask, you know, if you're not curious, if you're not looking for places for the analytics, if you don't have specific places that you're looking for the analytics to make to make a difference for you, it's not like you can just say, hey, tech guy, go look at the sport view data and figure out how to make the team better. I mean, you have to, you know, you have to have a focus. You have to go in with something that you want to pull out. It's not like it's just, you know, there's not a, there's not a big pot of gold just waiting at the end of the maze and you have to work your way through. I mean, you have to figure out what you're looking for. And the other part of that is there's a different kind of competition for people in that analytic research role, because I think sports has had a benefit, let's say, with scouts and things like that for years, that people are so into sports that they're willing to take less money to, you know, to be a part of it. And I think there are a lot of different ways to do that. But in the analytics field, I think that the people who are the best at that, their skills are so highly valued by the private sector that it feels like they would probably have to give up more more to make it work and and unless teams are willing to throw that money so then that that changes the calculation too yeah i mean if you want to be really well paid at this i'm sure that that shrinks the uh the available positions even further okay so we'll move just quickly (laughs) on to the rest of the the season to the the sport itself and i was wondering if you really have a feel yet for what you expect let's say beyond that the eastern conference finals that we already know kind of in terms of the title itself you know, I don't know. The Pacers' offense has really been cratering. Um, wasn't wild about the Evan Turner trade. So I don't know. That relationship between them and the Heat looks murkier than ever on that side. And, you know, I don't know. I, the Thunder have been just phenomenal all year, but they sort of have to rejigger how things are going to work. They have to figure out, you know, Durant and Westbrook again together. And Durant has been playing so differently this year with Westbrook out that they sort of have to figure out now how to take those things that Durant has been doing phenomenally well and sort of fit Westbrook in around them. So I don't know if Thunder Spurs, I, you know, I would assume we're going to be right there when everybody's healthy Clippers, I guess. But yeah, I don't know. It feels as muddy as it has all season. The other thing that I was thinking I wanted to ask you about is I was doing some work on Steph Curry potentially as an MVP candidate. And I was, what I was really shocked by was that if you, whether you're using something like PER, you're going more in the wind shares direction. A lot of the people at the top of the list for those are on teams that aren't going to make the playoffs. And I just find that intellectually fascinating. And it can be justified for lots of reasons. I mean, 
Anthony Davis and Kevin Love are on teams that are flawed, and DeMarcus Cousins is on a team that's even more flawed. But the idea of these truly great players being on teams that are not as great is fascinating to me. Well, I think sometimes, you know, when you're surrounded by, you know, flotsam, uh, your excellence, you know, sort of rises to the surface, you know. Kevin Love is phenomenal. He might not look as phenomenal, uh, you know, playing for the Heat or something like that, just because he's going to then be fit into a team framework. Um, And so individual excellence absolutely stands out when it's in an environment that's, you know, not nearly as rosy. Do you think, yeah, it'll be interesting to see, because obviously at some point, some of those players will be in other situations and to see how how that fits together. And we saw that with the Miami guys, you know, it took years for that to adjust. And then LeBron ended up becoming what LeBron is now. Yeah. So we'll see see how it all works out. Yeah, absolutely. So thanks so much for taking the time. I'm happy to be on. I uh, would love to come back on again soon. Thanks again to Ian Levy for coming on. You can read him at Hickory High. That's hickory with a dash in the middle, high.com. And you can also read him at Hardwood Paroxysm. Also, if you want to follow him on Twitter, you can follow him at Hickory High. And that's H-I-C-K-O-R-Y-H-I-G-H. Next up is Arturo Galetti. He writes for BoxScoreGeeks.com, and he also went to the conference. And so we talk about that part of the conference, what he learned from it, and also some interesting parallels with different parts of media of how they could learn from what Vince McMahon is doing with the WWE Network and how they promote their product and where basketball could go if they want to be proactive in terms of managing. The other thing to note is that our conversation runs about 25 minutes, but it cuts off kind of abruptly because we had a technical problem, but I wanted to put in as much of his answers as I could. So it's in there and it cuts off a little bit awkwardly. So apologies for that, but that's just the way that it ended up working out. So hope you like it. Thanks so much for coming on. How many years have you been going to the Sloan Conference? This is my second year, then uh, actually four years heavily following it, and then I didn't go three years back. I didn't. Uh, I followed Dre when he went, and that's Andre Tolvers, who's like one of my writing partners over at Wages of Wins and Boxer Geeks. And then I decided to go last year and this year, and it, it, it's a very interesting conference to go to. It has, and I think I just re- I was reading something Henry Abbott wrote. And he's right about this, which is it's kind of become the place to be for, like, hiring people for uh, NBA jobs. It's an interesting place for me because it's like, you know, I live on Puerto Rico. So, like, if I want to talk to NBA teams, I want to talk to insiders and get the scuttlebutt on what's going on. It's the one time of the year I really can do it. And interesting enough, I mean, I get, I get, I get a really interesting bunch of people who talk to me. I was surprised when I went last year, and there were people who, like, knew who I was and, and said hi and made it a point to talk to me. Like, Malcolm Gladwell knew who I was. And Malcolm Gladwell was like, oh, yeah, you, you guys wrote with Abe. And, and he knew kind of what stuff that we wrote, which is kind of interesting. And, again, he's not the only other. There's, there's guys, and, again, I'm not going to – again, you don't name sources, but there are guys on teams that want to talk to you and, and give you information and confirm things that you kind of know that, you know, if you're writing about the NBA, it's really valuable. You know, The conference is what you make of it. You, you need to be willing to talk to people. You need to be willing to engage. You know, we, we wear these ridiculous T-shirts so everybody knows who, who we are. We've been there two years, and they've become kind of like uh, uh, shared on Twitter because, you know, our readers help us come up with them, but they're, they're kind of silly. So we're the only guys. Everybody's wearing suits and interviewing, and we're walking around wearing joke T-shirts, and everybody's just staring at us as we walk uh, up and down the floor. Yeah, it's definitely an interesting experience. And as you talked about, one of the dynamics with Sloan is the presentations and then the experience outside of the presentations. And yeah. that they're in a lot of ways, they're two different but heavily related worlds. Yeah, if you're someone like me, you know, I'll go into the presentations and I'll and I'll pick the ones I like. I'll talk to the authors, so and, and then I'll engage. I mean, you know, I might end up talking to the guy out in the uh, in the uh, on the floor and 
you know, you'll meet, as I said, you'll meet people from teams, you'll meet GMs, and, and, and you know, if you're lucky, you know, you, you'll get to talk to them, right? You'll get to talk to guys who work for team. I, I met, for example, I met the guy who's the head of analytics for the Rockets. Thought it was a really interesting person to talk to, right? And it's not a guy who gets a lot of pub. He's not out there, but, you know, he's a key cog in the organization. It's an interesting to hear kind of the stuff he's thinking about and how it lines up the stuff you're thinking about. So it really is, if you're a stats guy or, or an analytics guy, or actually, I mean, I think there's, even, you know, if you're the kind of fi- a fan who digs it, I mean, it's a really interesting place to be. It's, you see some very, very, very cool stuff. Yeah, and it's also been interesting to me as somebody who went last year and followed it this year without going in person, how the NBA has, to a degree, kind of taken over Sloan in terms of if you look at the research papers or you just look at the presence of the different sports, it feels like basketball has really embraced that, which is interesting considering its relationship with analytics or sabermetrics, if you want to call it that, over time. There's an interesting dichotomy that you notice on the floor, and, and, and this is something, you know, I notice it. You mentioned the research papers, and, I, and I'm going to kind of go on, on a tangent and come back, which is, you know, you'll get things like, you know, the, the, the hot hand paper that went out, right? So the information goes out, and it's written, and it's properly written, and you can actually, if you know what you're reading, you can understand what it's actually saying, but people take the wrong thing necessarily for it. Now, people don't necessarily ask the right question. So that particular paper, everybody's talking about how they proved the existence of the hot hand. They didn't prove that the hot hand exists, per se, so it isn't that miraculously you'll start making more shots. It's What they proved was there's a hot hand bias. So the players, the offensive players and defensive players, believe that there is a hot hand. So the offensive player starts taking more difficult shots, and the defense adjusts for it and makes it tough. And at the end of the day, what the hot hand leads to is you actually get a loss for it because what happens is, you know, because the defense toughen up and you select tougher shots, then your your actual offensive efficiency dives as you fall into the hot hand as you go on. You're more likely to take a loss for it. But then everybody just talks about how they prove the existence of the hot hand, and they just kind of miss the point. So the point being, like, there's a lot of information, but it does frustrate me a little bit that people don't seem to kind of get what actually is there. And I think part of it, if when you're presenting that paper, you want to get this snappy idea out there, and people kind of focus on the wrong thing, or they sell the wrong thing out of the paper, right? So one of the big papers there, and I'm not going to mention which one, but there were some error. I mean, there were some things that were wrong in that paper and what they presented, and there were things that were wrong in how they set it up, but... From talking to the authors, they knew about it. They were really just wanted to get on the show. So they, they knew they were taking shortcuts. They knew they had some flaws in what they're presenting. But it was a nice line-grabbing paper. The rigor is kind of interesting. So um, to me, it's it, it, the background thing is more interesting than the foreground thing, which is happening with the papers, because there's some flaws. And again, the other thing I was going to, you know, this leads into what I was going to say is it, it's the money ball. The teams know what they're doing, and the teams that have an advantage aren't selling it, right? So... In my personal case, there are teams who very specifically know who I am, and there are teams who very specifically come to talk to me about the stuff that I do, and they're not teams that are necessarily out there saying that they're doing it, right? Do you get what I'm saying? Right? So they, they like some stuff, they'll come and tell you that they like it, but they're not going to come out and say it in public. Yeah, there's a big difference there, and the conference allows that, I wouldn't necessarily call it anonymity, but it allows for those sort of casual relationships, let's say, to form. And that is, in certain circumstances, depending on what you're looking for, one of the huge benefits of it is that it puts a lot of people that aren't usually in the same room in the same room. Yeah, I've had some very interesting conversations. You know, I, I started doing this as a, a Professor Barry pulled, put out a call for guest posts. I started writing. I did not think that this would lead to me three or four years down the path talking to, like, actual NBA people in meaningful conversations 
conversations about like here's you know here's my suggestion about what you should do with your team and then you know they're, they're not only they're humoring but they're engaging in a conversation with you and it, it's a rather interesting kind of thing for for you know as a fan for for it to happen you know and as I said it's a very interesting kind of mix of people and it's a very valuable mix of people I think it is. I was having a Twitter argument about whether or not there's value in, in analytics content. And I think there's real value in analytics content. But you, you kind of have to understand where the value comes in. And I think that, that that was actually one of the key things about Sloan was that it was the first time. And I remember I was, I was listening to the conference. Silver was asked a question by Malcolm Gladwell about gambling. And, you know, the word gambling was said by the commissioner without any derision whatsoever. It was a he, – he used it in a positive context. And – hidden secret in the room there's sharps everywhere there are people who are into it and they're into it in that conference and they're everywhere and i think this was the first time whether as opposed to being kind of like the second class citizen there they were accepted and respected and i think that's part of what drives that content part of that drives with the purpose i mean there's the teams who want to run have an advantage over other teams but there's the you know the the sharps that are out there that want to have an advantage and people don't know the, the gamblers that are out there that want to have an advantage and i think those folks were out there, and I think there's a there's a dawning recognition that you know those guys drive eyeballs and drive people to sites, right? So, you know, their their whole sites whose business model is built around providing information to this. You know, I think the big sites are, are you know they I've always had it, but I think there there's a bigger recognition that this is something that drives business. You know. Yeah, and there's also always been a really interesting relationship between the NFL and that sort of gambling because, functionally speaking, that's the real reason why injury reports in the NFL exist the way they do is so that gamblers know who's going to play and who isn't because otherwise teams could restrict it, and I think that would be fair conceptually. But it's that pressure, but the NFL does it in kind of this wink-wink, nudge-nudge way, and what's interesting about the NBA is I feel like they're getting more open about it, which I think is a good thing. Yeah, I mean, I think there there were some real things that I saw as negatives there, but I think it, that was a real positive because it's the thing that, you know, is going to, you know, to be honest, I mean, that's what takes the NFL to the next level in terms of what, how engaged people are with their fantasy teams, how engaged people are with picks and, and point spreads and whatnot. And I think, you know, the NBA, interestingly enough, if you're in the fantasy community, that's not something that's necessarily as big with the NBA. It is starting to, to pick up, and you and I were talking about this beforehand. There's things like, you know, daily fantasy sports now, which, you know, the NBA does have an advantage because it, it has more games every day, much like baseball. So it, it's an interesting thing, and I think it's something that's going to help. Silver recognizes it, or that was the impression I got, and he's a lot more modern about it than Stern was, which is really interesting. It would also be interesting to see how the relationship between the NBA and fantasy would change if they did what so many of us advocate for and reduced the schedule, because it would go in kind of a different... Obviously, you could still schedule it so there were games every day if that's what you wanted, and I think that would, would be fine, though I've heard interesting arguments that they could do different. But reducing the number of games would have an impact on gambling, fantasy, well, and I all think, that. Well, I think, you know, people people kind of underestimate... I mean, I, I, I'm of the feeling, and I'm the one who's making, like, interesting playoff proposals. If I don't think they're going to reduce the amount of games or the amount of days. Let's, let's be clear. The amount of days they can broadcast games on. And what I mean by that is they might take away... So let's say they reduce, like, 72-game schedule. They'll make up those 10 games either through an expanded playoff format or through some sort of one-off tournament like the things they do in Europe for, like, the FA Cup and whatnot. There are things that they'll do to drive, to keep the revenue at the same level or similar levels. I don't think they're going to surrender... They're not going to surrender games, right? So they're going to basically figure out something where, where it, it'll still be the same kind of, of revenue stream. I think that's... I mean, that's my opinion of it. Again, you might... 
I, I do agree that an 82-game season is probably something we can reduce, but I think the leagues, leagues will always find a way to fill the schedule, right? Yeah, and the other interesting part of all of that in terms of reducing the schedule and all that is that with the players getting, I think it's 51%, you might know the actual number, of BRI, that conceptually speaking, while everybody's scared of a reduction of revenues, it wouldn't have the catastrophic effect that it would have in other leagues because of how player salary is directly tied to that. Obviously, it would take time because of the way the salary cap works, but it would be interesting. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree with that. So we've already hit some of them, but are there any other notable takeaways in the positive or negative direction I, that I you'd like to most, share? And I was tweeting this as it was happening. It's like, you know, it's interesting the, the panels that are, there's always some panel happening, not in a main room, that has dire implications or interesting implications for the future. Last year, it was the, there was a CBA panel happening on, on one of the, uh, the side rooms that was talking that basically they went out and and they, they, they hashed out all the issues that are going to happen. There's going to be a, the players are going to walk out. And, and they basically explained why they're going to walk out. And they talked about all the issues that are ongoing. And, and everybody kind of aired all the agreements. It was a fascinating panel to be at. This year, there was a media panel early in the morning on Saturday. And it was fascinating because a couple things. The first one was, you know how the WWE uh, just started up the WWE Network, and they're basically marketing their content directly to the fans, right, through subscription service. They're actually broadcasting. So they, they're broad, still broadcasting on USA, but they're also broadcasting their own programming online, right? So they're moving events to that. And they're going directly to the client and selling, which is a really interesting sort of thing. And it, it has some really interesting implications about, you know, how leagues are going to control their content in the future. I think the other thing that was really interesting about that panel is Google was there, right? And, and you know how Google's talking about that there's, well, actually, Google's not talking about it. Google's not confirming it. But there's talk that Google's going to replace DirecTV as the broadcaster for uh, the NFL package, right? And the, the NFL's digital partner. And... It was a really interesting conference because I think everybody who was there, so it was like the Genie Bus was there and a couple other uh, folks from the teams that were there were, they're all kind of scared of what, and ESP, the guys from ESPN were there too, and they're kind of all kind of scared about what Google's going to do. And actually, I think they're rightly scared because there was a very interesting point where, like, they asked the Google guy about, and I, I said, sorry I'm saying the Google guy, but I don't remember his name off the top of my head, but they were asking him about, you know, whether he was thinking about getting into the space and he wouldn't confirm or deny it. But he went and gave you a 40-point plan about what he was going to do. And he basically said, the content providers that are out there now, right, and I think ESPN guys were standing right there, so it was a little bit of a shot at ESPN, they're not very good at getting you to content, right? So they're not very good at matching you to content. They're not very good at making sure the right content comes up, and they're not very good at monetizing it properly. And he basically, and he rightly so, he said, I'm much better at it. We're much better at it. This is what we do. And we would do a much better job. And, and then the ESPN guy was like, oh, no, we, you know, we've done it for a while. You know, we have the experience. We provide a package. We do a lot of content. And then the, the Google guy basically was supposed to say, well, you know, it's, it's like the New York Times Sunday paper. It's a wonderful content, right? But nobody reads it, right? So there were, there were some shots fired in that panel. And I think it, it, it's a very interesting dichotomy. And I think the teams and the, the networks have a real problem in the sense that, like, and this was another topic that was going around uh, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the conference was, like, the teams and the networks don't pay, right? So they there was a comment made by uh, Colangelo, right? And Colangelo made some crazy comments, but Colangelo made the comments like, "Oh no, we should spend two hundred fifty thousand dollars a year, right? To at least two hundred. You know, we should spend. You know, we, there's no point in not throwing two hundred fifty thousand dollars a year to do analysis on data, right? And 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 you're from a tech area, right? So how much how much analysis does two hundred fifty thousand dollars buy you in Silicon Valley? I'm not too closely in the field, but my thought is not a whole lot if you're looking right. for and, quality and, people. You know, 
the point is like you know they're 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 trying to hire all these like interns and 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 like just graduating guys who have not experienced and that's fine if you're competing against like Fox Sports and NBC Sports and and and, cla- and typical media companies but once like Google gets in the field I mean Google's just basically going to kill them I mean like Google is built around better SEO better search engine optimiz- optimization and really I don't think ESPN's prepared to like take them on if they start getting into that space. And there was every indication from that panel that Google's coming to the, for the space. You know, it's like, you know, they, they just got done taking down Microsoft and, and Yahoo, and now they're coming for ESPN. And that was a really interesting panel to see. I mean, I think that, I think there was, they were talking also about how the Lakers signed this 20-year contract for digital rights, and uh, that looks like a really bad idea at this point because it looks like, everything also looks like the digital rights stuff is just going to keep going up in price. Yeah, that's definitely interesting. Yeah, the other the other part to me about thinking about Google in relation to the leagues and everything is that something, particularly Ethan Sherwood Strauss and I, but I've talked about it with other people too, maybe even you, is that the NBA League Pass system needs a ton of work and that somebody like Google could do the, a part of that incredibly you know, well. The interesting part the is NBA. they've already done it. They do the, uh, I believe they do the package outside of the U.S. It's not like they even oh, have really? to develop it. They, they've already got the NFL package for outside the U.S. So all they need to do is just that. I don't it was either Venom or Yahoo. I think, you know, it's Google who's doing it. So it's not like they need to develop it. They, we know that they have better tools. Everything I hear about is the European package is better. They just haven't been allowed to break into the market because the NFL stuck with DirecTV. So, no, I mean, yeah, they could do a fabulous job. I mean, right now, the, the League Pass app is, is, is sad. You know, it, it, it's, you know I, I have to, if I want to do anything, I have to get out of the damn, I use it on my iPad, I have to get out and then, like, find, or have two devices on me so I can do Twitter. It's really annoying. And I like to like watch games and comment on them. And you know, I should be able to tweet when I'm in the in the league pass out. I should be able to watch more than one game at the time too. They should switch games. Or be able or switch between one and two when one's Correct. on commercial. Or like or like give me when I wanna go back and watch it on rewind, you know, why the hell do I still have to see the commercials? How hard is it to write something and just takes out the commercials? Or give me like a slider so I can actually do it. Or give me like a like scenes so I can go to. I mean, there are a million things they could do. You could probably, you could give me a game and like that I could watch in like 35 minutes by by cutting out the commercials and taking out like some of the free throws and things that aren't interesting, you know. And and it would make for a much better watch. And you know, sorry to say this, but you know, if you know, if I'm sitting in the chair and I'm thinking about who I'm going to give that to, am I going to do it? You know, if I'm the NBA and sitting there, do I give it to Turner, who's going to do the same job they've done before? Or do I say, hey, you know what? I'm going to partner with Google, who really knows what they're doing, right? And they're promising yeah. they no way to take more money. So the thing, the obvious thing is, like, so when somebody wants to see a dunk, an in-game dunk, Google will probably have that up on a web page. Like, they can have it up and ready, and there's the first link on their on their on the Google search engine, so that you they you go to an NBA page, you the NBA gets the ad revenue for you going and seeing that marvelous uh, LeBron dunk or what else is going on. Yeah, there are a lot of things with that. And also, one of the things, and I wrote a piece on this, actually, when Silver took over, is I really hope that when they negotiate the next television deal, that they really think even about the idea of broadening the scope of the sport, even if the revenue itself isn't that much bigger. And what I was thinking about with that is that of the three biggest sports in terms of North American, let's say pop culture, if you want to say that, basketball has the lowest amount of eyeballs in terms of, let's say, network television. And while some people are saying, oh, that's passe, I think Silver even said it in his at Sloan. I think that there's a group of people that could fall in love with the sport if it was a little bit more accessible. And so making it better in the ways that the, for diehards is a great thing, and I fully support that in all forms. But I feel like they also need to 
kind of get the gateway drug element of it in play a little bit better as well. You know, I mean, if and again, if I was running in the league, so I think the things I would do is a couple things is the draft wheel is coming, right? So the draft wheel is coming. That's going to happen. They need to get that to happen. They need to basically set it up so that there isn't whatever they do, they set up a system so there is no incentive for losing. That's the first one. You can't have incentive for losing. They need to set it up so that yep. you have flexible schedule on national nights. The idea of having only two games, it's nice, but they need to make it so that when a team isn't any good, you can switch them out and give people a marquee matchup. Like, there's the last couple of national TV nights. It's bad because the game not happening on national TV has been awesome, and somehow they picked the worst possible games to actually show. And again, I think the other thing, in, you know, and I hate saying this for, for, for certain teams, but, you know, I'd be looking at moving my teams to the most appealing markets possible. Right, so owning a team isn't a birthright. Owning a team is a privilege. And if I'm a league, I'm, I'm trying to get these teams in the most attractive markets possible, right? So you, you're trying to sell and grow the game, and I think that's something you, you have to do that. And I think, again, I think it's an interest looking for ways to make the fantasy component and, and kind of, the, the, the again, the warrior component of the game more interesting. How do I make it so that it's, it's something that's it, it's easy to use and more appealing? Because, I mean, this is how people interact with leagues now. You know, you, you want to make these things so that they're more attractive and they're more interesting to people to use, right? So you want, again, how do you get the casual fan hooked, right? How do you get them into the stadium or caring about that or looking up information? And that's kind of the things you need to do. That's what you need to start thinking about. Yeah, and the other thing that they need to do is there are a lot of different ways to get your hooks into people. And sometimes it can be, you know, having games on network TV. It can be fantasy. And the other thing that they've had a lot of trouble conveying over the years, which is shocking to me as somebody who's covered the league in person for so long now, is it's a great live experience. And it's one of those things, like a classic example I use is that my sister is, an, is not mm -hmm. a sports fan at all. She actively dislikes it. And I took her to a game that I wasn't covering, but just a game I attended. And we got good seats. It was a team that wasn't very good. We got good seats. And at the end of it, she didn't say, you know, I had an awesome time, but she said, I understand why you're so into it. And if you can at least get people who are actively disinterested to that stage in one game, then you have a good product. And so you just need to figure out a way to to get into people and to, to show them that and have faith in that, that it will carry them as long as you can get people in the door. You know, and you I think it? the other thing, you again, and I think, and I was talking this to somebody, it's like, you know, Vince McMahon is a visionary. And, and, I, and I say that with the understanding, and, and, you know, I've been a fan, and whoever's not a wrestling fan won't understand it, but, like, he's a guy who, like, looks at how to sell people and how to take care of us, you know, and, and how to grow his business to the maximum. I think, And I think they've done a fabulous job, and I was going to make the point, of selling the stories and the backstories and selling to a non-traditional audience. And I'm talking about the stuff they're doing with the Divas and they're talking stuff they're doing in terms of reality TV on E. That's a brilliant because they're going after the demographic with that that's completely outside of the normal demographic for the league. So, I mean, I, I do think things like, you know, having like, uh, you know, the association, having teams being followed, reality TV, access of that kind and, and more kind of content around players and, and, and kind of the interactions and relationships is interesting. And not, I mean, not necessarily just to the kind of fan I am, but I mean, to like my wife, you know, so and to kind of other kind of non-traditional uh, people. And again, I think also content. I mean, somehow, you know, they, they need to figure out, and, you know, they have a really valuable catalog of things and, and, and how you figure out how to use that and how to make it easier for the fan. You know, I think that the, the saddest thing is if I want, there's content the NBA has that I can't get, right? So 
I had a whole thing where I couldn't get League Pass until like really this season because of restrictions and, and rules and I had to go to the cable company. It was just a pain in the, the watches. And, and I think, you know, you have to start thinking and looking at, one, what content your fan, your, your, your fan base wants and how to get it to them. But also, I mean, how do you package your league in such a way to make it attractive to non-traditional fans, right? And I think, again, they, they have real luck with this in the sense that, like, you know, you know, they are larger-than-life personalities. It's a sport where, like, you see everybody's faces. It's less people on the court. You know, they're, they're more engaged. There are more people who have an opinion on, say, Carmelo Anthony probably than, like, most any football player who's not, like, a quarterback. These are guys who drive the numbers and drive the stories. And I think – I don't know that necessarily the league does a great job of, of, of kind of marketing that. I think – I mean, I, I kind of understand that. I mean, I think David Stern was always really afraid – and I'm going to get a little controversial here. I think David Stern was afraid was always trying to downplay the blackness of the league, right, and the ethnicity of the league, and, and try to make it more mainstream. And, and and I understand why David Stern was doing that. I mean, there were some real situations with drugs and, 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 and kind of some of the stuff that was going on when he inherited the league. But I think right now, I mean, I think with the kind of world that we're living in, he has to kind of play up the personality. And I think you have to start thinking about how you, you know, these guys are stars and celebrities. And, you know, they, we live in a culture that's celebrity obsessed. And how do you market that to your advantage is something that the league needs to start thinking about. As opposed to kind of avoiding it and trying to whitewash what, you, what, what, what they have, they should really kind of be embracing it a little more. They need to be a little more open about it, less corporate. Yeah, I agree with that to a point. I think that was also the dress code factors in with that. And I've been critical of that in that sense that I feel like they caved on the identity of the league. But Going back to the wrestling thing, I'm not really into the current product as much, but I know that historically, at least like when I was younger and was interested in it, that one of the things that Vince always did well was that if, if somebody was hot, if the fans were really getting into them, then they would make sure that they were on television more. And what the NBA has done in recent years is they basically said, these are the teams, if you're not a diehard fan, you know, like, for, let's say for me, you're going to watch these teams. You're going to be watching the Knicks and the Bulls and the Lakers, whether they're good or not, and they don't have any flexibility. So if, let's say the Thunder, it took years for the Thunder to get on national TV. And so it, it's at the point now where if you want to watch the games that I, if I had to say as somebody who covers the league and who watches it intensely, would be the best games to get people who are sports fans but not NBA fans into basketball, those games aren't on national TV. The games that are on national TV, whether we're talking ABC, TNT, ESPN, for the most part, aren't the most engaging games. And that is something that whether you do it through flexible scheduling or you do it through having a more concerted effort on building stars, not where those stars are located, I think it would do a Do you remember the NBA the highlight show from the 80s? Well, actually, you might be too young for this. There was like a, the NBA highlight show they used to show on cable, like an hour, and there was like the dunks and the best plays. And they would have the players out and interview them. They, they would push these players. They would push, like, the young players. Thanks again to Arturo Galetti for coming on. You can read him at BoxScoreGeeks.com. And you can also follow him on Twitter at Arturo Galetti. That's A-R-T-U-R-O-G-A-L-L-E-T-T-I. And also thanks to Ian Levy of Hickory High and Hardwood Proxism for coming on. Really happy to have them and to give a summary of Sloan for those of us who weren't lucky enough to go. It is a really fun experience for those of you who have the opportunity to do it. So have some really excited to have some cool stuff coming up in the next couple of weeks. Going to do an NCAA tournament slash NBA draft prospect preview show before that starts. And also going to really kick into gear on what is going to be a variant of the eliminated column that I've done for years for Real GM, which is talking to people who are in tune with 
the teams around the league, hopefully at a time that's close to when they actually get eliminated, so we can give a more specific, probably about 10 minute, maybe 10 to 15 minute, talking through on each team to give everybody the attention that they deserve, and then that will be most of the time going in line with the early part of the playoffs and everything else. So if you have anybody that you would like as a guest in that, you can let me know at daniel.laroux at realgm.com, or you can hit me up on Twitter at Danny LaRue. That's D-A-N-N-Y-L-E-R-O-U-X. I'd love and appreciate your suggestions. I already have some in mind, but I will listen to all of them, and hopefully those people are interested, and that'll make for some really good episodes. So thanks for listening. Take care, and make it a great day. When you don't go to Geico.com, car insurance can be confusing. Like, Swedish techno confusing. Bark, bark, meow, meow. Dance with me, purple cow. Bark, bark, meow, meow. Ooh, you lovely cow. Geico makes it easy. With 24-7 access, all you have to do is go to Geico.com and you could save money on car insurance. It just makes sense. Unlike, you know. Dance with me, purple cow. I like your moves.